Oh, hi, it's your friend Ellie, and you're listening to Butt Out Baby, a scene-by-scene recap and analysis of the 1987 masterpiece Dirty Dancing, a film that gets a lot of love, but not enough respect. We're on scene five, Jewish matchmaking, aka the dinner scene where Lisa meets Robbie and Baby meets Neil. I'll do the recap and talk a bit about the screenplay. Then I will be joined by Mari Cohen, associate editor at Jewish Currents, to talk about matchmaking in the Jewish community and the stereotypes of the nice Jewish boy and the Jewish American princess. Just a quick correction, though, from last episode. I mispronounced Gentile, as in a non-Jewish person. I said Gentile. It's pronounced Gentile. It was definitely one of those things where I've read the word a number of times, but I have never said it out loud. And it took me back to an embarrassing memory from when I was maybe 21. I had a coworker who was a few years older than me who I was trying to impress And we were talking about The Who, the band, and their album, Tommy. For those of you unfamiliar, Tommy was a huge album from the late 60s about a traumatized kid who grows up to be amazing at pinball. Super relatable. I went through a phase of being really into this album when I was like 10 years old, thanks to my dad, but also the Canadian musical production of Tommy from 1995. So I was more familiar with the overall story of the album than my coworker, and he was asking me how the story ends. And I was kind of bumbling my way through trying to explain, oh, you know, Tommy becomes a cult leader, but couldn't quite remember it. Then my when my coworker went to the bathroom, I quickly went on Wikipedia to search for a summary of the last song. And then when he came back, I was like, oh my God, so I remembered what happens is that Tommy's disciples rebel against him. And my coworker was like, did you mean disciples? And I was like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, of course, that's what I meant. And then my coworker was like, you pronounced that almost like you just read it. And I just looked at him and was like, no, that's not what just happened. Okay, on to scene five, the bird's eye view. Later that evening at dinner, the Hausmans are formally introduced to Robbie, their server who is studying at Yale Medical School, and Neil, Max Kellerman's grandson, studying hotel management. Despite Jake openly flattering Baby above her sister, it is Lisa that catches the eye of handsome Robbie, and Baby is stuck with twerpy Neil. So we're back in the dining room. It's later. Every table is filled with guests. People are dressed up. There's wine. There's someone in the back drinking a martini. A waiter walks by holding a tray of what I can only assume is champagne because it's in flutes. In frame, we see part of a table with two older women foregrounded. And I thought one of them had some sort of cocktail in front of her, but later she takes a spoon to eat something out of it. So now I'm confused. Maybe it's a fancy fruit cup. Anyone have any thoughts? As I mentioned in the last scene, white tablecloths are draped over the tables. What a tremendous amount of laundry they must have to go through every day. Also, I've just always found white tablecloths very unappealing. There's the obvious lack of practicality of the thing in terms of stains. But also, instead of it being fancy looking, to me, it just looks dumpy or like unfriendly. I think I'm annoyed because this room should be very cozy. It has stone walls and light fixtures that are designed to look like lanterns. So the table is set before the husbands even sit down. 
There are full water glasses. There are some buns. There might actually be a plate of pickles. It's hard to tell for sure. I've heard Eleanor Bergstein say that for all the food scenes, they made sure not to have any dairy or meat on the table at the same time. This being an observance for some Jewish people. As the Hausmans walk into frame, Baby is being guided to the right side of the table by her dad, who pulls the chair out for her. Max Kellerman pulls the chair out for Marge on the opposite end. We hear her say, thanks, Max. Lisa stands pert with her back to us, waiting for Robbie, the waiter, to pull her seat out for her. Baby is watching Robbie. Max Kellerman introduces Robbie to the table. This is your waiter, Robbie Gould. Yale Medical School. Uh-huh. During this introduction, Robbie is staring at Lisa like a creep. When Jake says his little, uh-huh. he's nodding with approval. Marge is beaming up at Robbie. Baby's leaning back in her chair, looking just unengaged in the scene, as opposed to Marge and Lisa, who are sitting ramrod straight. Then Max says, Robbie, these are my special guests. Get them anything they want. Enjoy. Jake looks up and says, thanks, Max, as Robbie hands a menu to Marge. Then we cut to what seems like a couple hours later, maybe, as the table is now full of half-eaten dishes of food. There looks to be mashed potatoes, applesauce, chicken, some buns, half empty, or is it full? Glasses of wine and Coke, some pickles. Marge has her elbows on the table with her chin resting on her hands, surveying the scene of leftover food. And then she says, Oh, look at all this leftover food. Are there still starving children in Europe? In the original screenplay, the line is actually, my mother made us clean our plates for the sake of the starving children in Europe. It gives a bit of context, uh, for me anyways, for maybe what she would be talking about. So I'm guessing Marge is like 45 years old, which means she was born in 1918. So she would have been a child in the 20s and a teenager in the 30s. So I'm guessing her mom was referring to the Soviet Union and the famines that came as a result of radical agriculture policy. And also I recalled uh, and looked up some notes I took from a book called Jewish New York by Deborah Dash Moore. And she talks about how World War I unleashed new levels of anti-Semitism in the US. This was just after the Russian Revolution, which was led in part by Russian Jews. And so this was the beginning of the obsession that Jewish immigrants were going to spread communism to America. I'm guessing Marge's mom was not a communist radical just based on how assimilated and conventional Marge is, but who knows, communism was very popular in the 30s. But anyways, my guess is that Marge's parents didn't want to rock the boat, and so they would have felt pressure to distance themselves from Eastern European Jews, and one of the small ways she could have done that was reminding her kids that children are starving in communist Russia. By the way... Ayn Rand, the famous and controversial philosopher and writer who will come up later in the film when Robbie tries to give Baby a copy of one of her books, Ayn Rand was herself deeply impacted by her childhood in early Soviet Union, where her family was on the brink of starvation several times during this era. This is part of how she ended up so fiercely pro-individual rights. But this also reminded me of a quote from the memoir Wild Swans, which tells the story of three generations of women in China. The author Zhang Chan recalls her childhood, and I'm quoting her, As a child, my idea of the West was that it was a miasma of poverty and misery, like that of the homeless little match girl in the Hans Christian Andersen story. When I was in the boarding nursery and did not want to finish my food, the teacher would say, think of all the starving children in the capitalist world. The 90s equivalent in white middle-class houses was definitely, just think of the starving children in Africa. I mean, I don't recall my parents ever actually saying that, but the idea was really embedded in the time. Obviously, one of the problems with this is that in all examples, entire continents were being stereotyped. Now, I'm one of the last people to be giving parenting advice, 
but when I took a gander through several parenting blogs on what to do about picky eaters, I can tell you that none of them suggested guilting the child by demanding they be grateful for not suffering from food insecurity. So Marge is saying in the film, are they still starving children in Europe? Which is such weird phrasing. Who's they? But then baby responds. Uh, try Southeast Asia, Ma. I had assumed she was talking about Vietnam here. But as far as I can tell, there wasn't famine on a large scale at this time, nor anywhere in Southeast Asia. Apparently there was famine in Vietnam at the end of World War II, but there was also starvation in Europe at that time as well. When baby says, try Southeast Asia, Ma, Marge points at her and says, ah, right. With the kind of energy that you would say to someone if they like reminded you there was going to be rush hour traffic. It's a pretty cringy interaction to see from a family of well-off white people. It's like making a cute joke out of nuanced human tragedy. I like dark humor, but I keep it within close friendships. Otherwise, it's too hard to tell how serious a person is being, unlike the Hausmans who are having this discussion in front of Robbie and Max. Jake looks up and says, Robbie, baby wants to send her leftover pot roast to Southeast Asia. So anything we don't finish, you wrap up. There's a close up of Robbie as he takes in this joke. And I've always thought that the sound of his little like laugh doesn't match what the actor is doing with his mouth so maybe it was 80 yard after then we move to a view of the table from behind baby robbie and marge are grinning at each other and lisa is still sitting up straight but her elbows are on the table now i guess a lady is allowed to do elbows on the table at the end of dinner max is back at the table standing between marge and lisa Jake looks to Max and points to his youngest daughter. Max, our baby's gonna change the world. Rewatching this little part of the scene as many times as I have, I really have to admire the acting and also the blocking by the director. It's just all very subtle and naturalistic. Robbie is clearing up the dishes. Marge first looks at Jake with a fondness like, here he goes again about baby. And then she looks at baby and gives her a proud grin. Lisa is still sitting straight, resting her chin on her hands. When Jake starts talking, Lisa looks up at either Jake or Robbie. I can't quite tell. But then after it's clear that Jake is about to start praising baby, Lisa looks down to the table. She's not visibly upset. I mean, she's probably used to this. But it almost looks like she's trying to gather herself to get through the rest of the moment. But Max addresses her directly and says, And what are you going to do, Missy? Before I mention Baby's interjection, I just want to say that Max barely even looked at Baby after Jake's compliment. And here's my hot take. From the very beginning, I don't think Max Kellerman likes Baby very much. She's not typically feminine, and from the moment she arrived, she was breaking divisions between staff and guests, so I don't really think he gives a shit about her ambitions. But I think he recognizes that Lisa could be a match for Robbie and wants to give Lisa a moment to shine, but she ain't gonna get it, because before Max even has the word Missy out of his mouth, the camera cuts to a close-up of Baby, who says with a condescending look on her face, Oh, Lisa's going to decorate it. We pull out to a shot of the table from behind baby lisa is now visibly frowning at baby marge and jake are smiling like oh what a cute little way of phrasing that which leads to the question do people think that jake and marge believed baby meant this as a compliment or a clever description of lisa's interests rather than it being mocking it seems obvious to me that baby's mocking her finally we have robbie's creepy comment she already does for years, I really did not understand the exact exchange here because I thought Baby was saying Lisa is going into decorating. And as I was reviewing this, I recalled I probably left a voice memo about this to Anna and Michelle in 2019, of which you've already heard some excerpts from in the very first episode of this podcast. And sure enough, I did. A line that has always baffled me, I think baffled you guys, which is when Robbie first hits on Lisa... 
in front of everyone, which, yeah, that's cool. Like, just random sexual harassment by the waiter. But um, when Baby tries to, like, pathetically stick up for Lisa and say, Lisa's going into decorating. And then Robbie's like, she already does. And everyone's like, ooh la la. And I was like, always like, what the fuck does he mean by that? Baby could also be saying she's good at decorating. I do think she's saying she's going into. And she already does. She already does what? She already does decorating. She already is hot like a decoration. I actually can't believe I said there that Baby was defending Lisa. It's very clear to me now that Baby's mocking Lisa. This was Michelle's response. My interpretation of it was always that Baby was just making fun of her sister for choosing like a kind of dumb profession. She was going to get a Pulitzer, but she was going into decorating. Uh, And that Robbie's comment was that like her sister is a decoration. Like she's so beautiful that she like decorates the world. Just let's just have a little feminist teaching moment for all my young male listeners, which probably don't exist. But I know in the aftermath of Me Too, I've heard some people, mainly older men, to be honest. So actually, really, this is a message for all men, all people. I don't know. All people who want to hit on people in public. I've heard people be like, what are we supposed to do now? We can't even like flirt anymore or pay people compliments. No, there are still friendly people who like to chat with strangers. I seldomly am one of those people, though I'm trying to be a bit more open lately. And last night, I was walking back to my place with a pizza, and I walked by this old man with a walker who's moving very slowly down the sidewalk with a caregiver. He smiled and said something to me, but of course, me being a millennial dickhead, I had my earbuds in, so I had to pause it, and then I said, pardon? And he said, hey, thanks for bringing my pizza. And I laughed. I wanted to make sure he knew that I liked the joke. So I yelled back, hot and fresh which is like was kind of a weird response, but you know, we're trying. So here are some guidelines I feel like for men approaching a woman in public. Number one, only talk to her if there's something about her that genuinely interests you and it can't be her hotness. I'll talk about that more in a second. But it could be her aesthetics. Maybe you like her style. Maybe you're intrigued by the book she's reading or you've read it, or maybe you are both in a waiting room and are annoyed and over a similar thing and you want to commiserate with her. Number two, do not comment on her looks. I don't care if you once called a woman beautiful on the street and she liked it. Women have been objectified their whole lives and that's the easiest way to make us feel unsafe and that you have an agenda and an expectation to the interaction. Which leads me to number three, short of her not physically assaulting you, she owes you absolutely nothing. And so do not hold her to any expectation from the interaction. She doesn't owe you her number. She doesn't owe you an explanation for not wanting to talk to you. She doesn't even need to be polite. In the same way, if you are a straight man at a grocery store and you get to chatting with another straight man about your favorite cheeses, and then let's say he had to take a call that cut your chat really short, And then maybe you were disappointed because you are new to the neighborhood. You're looking to make new friends. But like you wouldn't run after him, interrupt his phone call and be like, hey, that was rude. I thought we were having a good time. And on to my last rule, if you're going to approach a woman in public, it should be in an environment where she can easily exit the conversation if she wants to. I don't care if you would never hurt or intimidate a woman in your life. I don't know how many times myself and my friends have talked about getting off the subway at a stop that was not ours because a guy was hitting on us and we were not feeling like we could comfortably reject him and then just sit in the same subway car for like 40 more minutes. So if you're in a subway or a bar or something and you've had this like psychic experience that this is my future wife, so you absolutely need to approach this woman, wait until you're about to leave, go up to her and tell her, hey, I'm just about to leave, but I like your shirt. I, I noticed you reading that book, blah, blah, blah. And then if she seems that she's kind of into you, you can reiterate that you have to leave. But if she wants, here is your phone number. I know this is shocking, but I don't actually speak for all women. So not everyone's going to completely agree with that. But I feel like if you've had no idea before this, that will at least be some good groundwork. Robbie's comment is gross to me because A, it's public, so Lisa can't be like, ew, what the fuck, in front of her family. 
Also, this kind of public comment about a woman's looks conveys to me that Robbie is so comfortable in his entitlement to appraise a woman's appearances that he can do it in front of her parents, in front of his boss, knowing that no one will correct him. And then the other reason I think it's gross is that B, if Lisa wasn't comfortable with that comment, she was now going to have to spend three fucking weeks with him as her waiter. If he was genuinely interested in her, there would be plenty of other opportunities to have little chats here and there about her interests, about their lives, about her clothes. I mean, Lisa loves fashion. So after Robbie says she already does, Lisa's frown turns into a little smile. Marge looks over at Lisa like, ooh, that's charming. Max snaps his fingers to somebody off screen in a gesture to call them over. And in comes a shorter young man with a grin on his face. Max puts an arm around him and says, I want you to meet someone, my grandson Neil. Goes to the Cornell School of Hotel Management. Neil keeps a smile plastered to his face the entire intro as he looks around the table. He seems to take pleasure in this kind of display, which for me, this kind of thing would make me evaporate into the ceiling. Camera goes over to Jake, who says, oh, baby's starting Mount Holyoke in the fall. Close up of baby whose face drops and she stares at her dad like, what the fuck? Don't align me with this little dweeb. But also... Cornell is in Ithaca and Mount Holyoke is in South Hadley. I looked these up and these two towns are not close to each other. I always assumed they were and that's why Jake brought it up. So this is even worse, I guess, because he's being like, oh, my daughter is also going to university. You have so much in common. In any case, we hear Neil say, oh, great, off screen. And baby then looks up at him and gives a pained smile. And then we get a close-up of Neil who does this amazingly cringe eyebrow raise to baby. I have this on the Instagram. Lonnie Price, who plays Neil, he oh, just pitch perfect job in this role. She's like the wind through my tree. So I found this podcast called On the Nose, which is a politics and culture podcast by Jewish Currents, which according to its website is a magazine of the Jewish left founded in 1946. And I listened to a couple episodes they did, including one on the Netflix reality show Jewish Matchmaking. And I was like, oh, these people are so smart. And Mari Cohen was one of the panelists. I ended up finding some of her writing on the Jewish Currents website, including an amazing review she did of a Jewish dating app called The Locks Club. That is L-O-X Club. So I emailed her and was like, please come on my show. We started off with her history with Dirty Dancing. I would say I have like a positive but not super involved relationship with Dirty Dancing. At one point, I like caught it on TV. I remember like enjoying it and like thinking it was cool. But I think I was like too young to really understand a lot of what actually happens. I'm not sure if it even was like clear to me at that point that there was like an illegal abortion that was happening. I don't know if that like even fully that might have gone over my head. Did you internalize, oh, this is a Jewish movie or was that just a movie? Yeah, I really didn't um, think of it as a Jewish movie for a while. I feel like people focused a lot on the dancing and uh, Time of My Life song, great song, should you know, come on, weddings, parties. Someone did a remix. There was a remix of that song that got, was kind of popular when I was younger. Maybe it was like Black Eyed Peas. Okay, Mari is younger than me, so I was bopping to different music at this time, but I looked up the Black Eyed Peas version of Time of My Life can't say I'm a fan, and I'm not going to drop a clip in here. Instead, I will use this opportunity to sing into a vocoder to give you my cover of their cover. Mari grew up in Michigan, and I asked her if, when she was a kid, was she familiar with the mythology of the Catskills? Yeah, I would honestly say not super present um, for me. My dad is from the East Coast. 
near like the Poconos Mountains. And he, my grandparents actually met like in that area, although I think it's historically like a little bit less Jewish. But there was like a little bit of like, I guess, like, you know, East Coast mountain like resort lore. Definitely had to double check where the Poconos are. It's basically the northeast of Pennsylvania, known as a vacation area, and it's about the same distance from New York City as the Catskills. Both regions had Jewish vacation resorts, but there were a lot more in the Catskills, and the Poconos developed them later. Mari said she didn't grow up knowing about the Catskills, but after she went to college, that changed. But I think once I got like more familiar with like Jewish culture and um, history, I understood it more as kind of like, uh, I guess, like motif. I was struck by Mari using the word motif to describe the Catskills as a setting in media. I'd never thought about it that way before, probably because I was not previously familiar with the setting. But it really is a motif in that it's a symbol for a specific era and place and a certain kind of nostalgia. Two scenes from now, I'll do a deep dive on the Catskills and the Borscht Belt, but I thought I would take a moment to tell you about something I read in terms of comparing the Catskills to the Poconos. I was looking through a book called Better in the Poconos, the story of Pennsylvania's vacation land, and one of the things the author brings up is theories about why the Catskills loom so much larger in the American mind than the Poconos one of the theories is that much of eastern Pennsylvania was settled by Quakers, and one of the values of Quakers is modesty, and so artists would not be encouraged to be boastful about their state. This seems like a bit of a simplistic answer, I don't know, but write in to me if you have some intel on this. But Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow are set in the Catskills and Hudson Valley area, both by Washington Irving. He'd never actually been to the Catskills before writing about it. And woven into that was his impressions of the Dutch heritage of the area, which you may recall in a previous episode that Sojourner Truth was born into slavery in New York State under a Dutch family, which is why Dutch was her first language. So the Catskills and Hudson Valley were already very familiar in the American imagination before the Jewish resorts became part of its motif. In terms of growing up, not in New York City as a Jewish kid, was there this feeling that there was all of this content coming out of Hollywood, but it was very New York Jew? Yeah, I think it does feel a little bit like a New York thing. Growing up, I wouldn't say that I felt like, oh, this New York Jewish representation is so foreign. I didn't really understand like the relationship between like Jews and Hollywood or whatever. I mean, you know, in just in terms of like the actual Jewish participation in culture rather than like, you know, whatever weird anti-Semitic conspiracies. Okay, I have to pause it here. Mari and I were talking about the overrepresentation of the Jewish New York experience in Hollywood. And then you hear her pause to clarify that by Jews in Hollywood, she didn't mean the anti Semitic conspiracy. Listeners will not be surprised that until recently, I didn't know that this was a trope or a conspiracy that Jews control Hollywood. But I do remember when I was like 22, I worked for a few weeks in New York City and my girlfriend came down to visit me and we got some cheap standing tickets for some Broadway shows, including Spamalot, which I mostly remember finding absolutely hilarious, except near the end, there's this like meta song about bringing a performance to Broadway. And then one of the characters is like, oh, it won't work for us. And he launches into a song called you won't succeed on Broadway if you don't have any Jews. And I remember people laughing so hard at this. And my girlfriend and I were like, wait, what is the joke? So secular Jews were responsible for some of the original Hollywood studios. But to quote an author named Robert Guffey, who's written about conspiracy, any disinformation campaign has to have a core of truth to it, otherwise it's not going to be believable. I really think for my own curiosity, I might have to do a bonus episode breaking down Jewish conspiracy theories, because now that I've started paying attention to them more, holy shit, anti-Semitism seems to be at the core of so 
many conspiracy theories. It's just this fixation on an international people who can pass as white, holding positions of power and secretly putting forth some sort of radical agenda. It's incredibly insidious and goes back a really long time, which also reminds me in scene two and his debrief when I was talking about their racial segregation battles, I really wanted to mention a Canadian example, but believe it or not, I actually decided not to include a thing. But on the National Film Board of Canada, the NFB on their website, which has tons of free documentaries, um, they have this 30-minute documentary from 1954 about protests in an Ontario town I had previously never heard of called Dresden. And there was a group of Black residents challenging discriminatory businesses that were not abiding to a very new Ontario law called the Fair Accommodations Act. And there's this part uh, in the documentary when a journalist is going out into the town and interviewing random people. And this was from a conversation with a white man in a pool hall. We had nothing against and haven't got anything against the colored people. Yeah. They made a mess in their own mist. Yeah. Do you think they have a lot of support or not? Been back by the, by the uh, people from outside. Yeah. What, who, who are these people, do you, do, do you think? Well, there's the, the, the colored people from, from the, some of the big organizations in the States. There's the communists that are looking for trouble all the time, and there's the Jews. this scene so it doesn't seem at all strange that sort of these two young men are kind of being presented um to the family as i was saying i've like learned there's a stereotype around matchmaking in jewish culture and uh one of my friends who is jewish i was asking her about this and she told a story about how her cousin at his wedding he was marrying a, a woman who was not jewish and at the wedding the aunt and uncle were still like we have this nice Jewish girl for you. <laughs> is that a stereotype that makes sense to you? And like, where does that come from? Definitely think it's real, at least in my experience. I think obviously people's actual experiences vary. Like not all of my Jewish friends experience it, I think, to the same degree that I do. So it kind of depends. You know, and there's a sense in which it's not always entirely serious. Or I think my mom, for example, knows that like, you know, my sisters and I will get like a little bit um, annoyed if she talks too much about like, you know, what Jewish guy to set us up with. Like we used to tease my mom. We would say, we'd be like, mom, what if we fall in love with someone and we just really want to marry him, but he's not Jewish? And she would be like, he'll convert. <laughs> and so that was kind of like the joke that we had. And there's also like programming that kind of reinforces it in the Jewish world. I mean, there's a lot that's been written and discussed about like Birthright, the free Israel trip program as kind of a vehicle for making Jewish matches. Birthright is a free trip to Israel for young people who have at least one Jewish birth parent. And it's funded by philanthropists, Jewish organizations and the Israeli government. And one of its founders is billionaire Michael Steinhardt, who seems to be a problematic figure in many ways that I'm not going to try and cover here. But on his foundation's website, it says he co-founded Birthright, quote, in response to the eroding Jewish life in the diaspora. My friend Jess went on Birthright about 10 years ago, and I asked her if she felt like there was a matchmaking or hookup agenda. And she emailed me back and she started off by saying, Birthright definitely has a hookup agenda. But she emphasized that she went on, she went when she was 27, which is like for the older quote unquote group, uh, which tends to have people that are genuinely interested in learning about history and possibly already have partners. A friend of hers did the trip when she was younger and she met her husband on the first day. Jess joked, it's total husband slash wife shopping if for some reason you didn't get one at Jewish summer camp. 
But even her experience in the birth rate for the older kids, she said that the first night they got there in a shul basement, which I learned is the Yiddish word for synagogue. Anyways, in the basement on the first night, they put M&Ms on the ground and each person had to take a color to indicate if you were either single, not available or open and red was not available and Jess took the red one and she said, it felt like instantly the dudes I was a bit friendly with stopped talking to me. For the first while, she said the trip was just really lonely because of that. She wasn't like vibing with the girls either until she started bonding with one of them over comedy podcasts. The girl revealed that she was a lesbian but didn't feel comfortable coming out in the group and just was like, oh, thank God we can be friends. And she's still friends with her to this day. I'm personally into that kind of matchmaking. And I don't think it's necessarily unique to Jewish communities. I think that you find this in a lot of like ethnic diaspora communities. But I do think like within American Judaism um, and imagine in North American Judaism more broadly, it's kind of been a focus since like probably around mid 20th century was a lot of focus on like new studies coming out about people not wanting to be as Jewish and people not marrying Jewish partners. And this really kind of precipitated a crisis among a lot of American Jewish leaders. And I think that really what it stems from is kind of like an identity crisis around assimilation. Really, when this identity like crisis started to show up in American culture, dates from when Jews were in a place where they were more assimilated, you know, rather than living in urban neighborhoods that were explicitly Jewish, where the entire community was Jewish, and perhaps that they had to band together against anti-Semitism or like xenophobic sentiment. Now, you know, things were more comfortable, they were getting more resources, they could like move out to different suburbs and like live in different places. And basically, often, at least for, you know, white European Jews could often blend into the American mainstream. And so there becomes this big question of like, what does it mean to be Jewish? And I think that like, this emphasis on perpetuating Jewish families has been a big part of like American Jewish organizations like response to that crisis because it's like well we can keep Jewishness going in this way by making sure that you know people marry Jews and then they'll still be Jewish yeah because I was thinking if baby's gonna go and they talk about it how baby's gonna go to Mount Holyoke in the fall that their generation will be maybe within that family the, the first one to be in relation or in communities that are a lot more mixed and so I'm like think like of this era so babies is the well it's like the baby boomers like their generation that's the first generation after the world war ii do you have a sense of where things would have been at at that moment in time the first post-war babies being old enough to start dating Yeah, I think that's definitely um, a turning point in a lot of ways. And if you also think about like the 50s as kind of this turning point of like, you know, flight from the cities and especially like white flight um, from the cities into the suburbs, including a lot of Jewish families. Like, for example, my parents were both born around 1961. So I guess they would have been like a little bit younger than baby because like this is 1963 and she's already a teenager. And so I guess my parents were like 17 years behind that. But it was kind of like... My grandparents were the generation that had like been born in the city. My mom's side in Detroit, my dad's side in New York, uh, Brooklyn and Queens. And like they had been born in the city. But then my parents were, well, my mom was born in the city, but then like grew up mostly in the suburbs. And that transition kind of happened, you know, around that time, like in the 50s and 60s. So this is like a little bit earlier than that. But you can tell that like, you know, there's they've definitely achieved a good amount of like American class success. Obviously, like the father is a successful doctor. Um, They're pretty affluent. At the same time, the fact that they're even kind of going to these more like Borscht Belt Catskills resorts kind of indicates that there's still this more like Jewish coded social structure that they're involved in and that like more like general white country clubs and camps might still not have really accepted Jews at this time. As you said, there is sort of like a class um, element to this that doesn't even seem to be remotely hidden. In this scene, like you have these boys being presented right away. It's like what the colleges are that they're going to like in terms of the kind of pedigree of the boys that are being presented. Um, and it sounds re- like your article that you wrote about that, the Jewish dating app, you talked a little bit about how you felt like the term that kept on coming up was like ambitious um, and like kind of unpacking what that means exactly. 
this is just me like spitballing, but that like there is now an opportunity to kind of carve out the more upper upper middle class life uh, within Jewish communities. And so to hold on to that class would have felt a little bit more easy to do. I'm, I'm not sure. Like that would be that that the importance of that would be really wrapped up in also the potential suitor being Jewish themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's definitely huge. I mean, there are like just kind of stereotypes and jokes about that in Jewish culture, for sure. Like there's this there's like a big emphasis placed on education. And I think I mean, some of that comes from like Jewish history, like, you know, families were more religious. There was an emphasis mostly on the boys being able to do Torah study. And that's like a big part of religious practice. So there's always been kind of this like educational element. If you think about, you know, people coming back from World War II and like this big wave of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe happens between like 1880 and 1920. But then, you know, people come back from World War II and the Jews had access to the GI Bill. They had access to all of those benefits. They were kind of like granted access to the social programs that all white people were able to. There had been like quotas limiting the amount of Jews who could be admitted to Ivy League universities and that sort of thing. And those had been, were starting to be lifted. So there was basically just this major opening and opportunity to get this more elite education. And so that became very important. It's interesting because when I did the Locks Club article and was looking at that app, it was like there's like this similar like focus on like ambition and like class status, but it's not even like doctors and lawyers on there really. It's people who like work in finance or like work for startups that might just reflect the type of like culture of this sort of like cool app or whatever, but also maybe something about like the way that like <laughs> the signifiers of like, American like class status and mobility have changed. I was going to say that's depressing. But at the same time, the, the fact that Robbie is in medical school, I'm like, he will make a terrible doctor. And he definitely like picked that because of the status, I would assume it doesn't seem like he has like any empathy for people. So I'm like, he can start some shitty startup like I would rather if he he did that. Totally. Something you introduced me to in that article and on the nose podcast the notion of continuity um i'd never heard that before and you made a kind of joke about it being uh a thing around an obsession around kind of um making up for the holocaust and i'd never heard any of those kinds of things before i'd be really interested for you to kind of break that down a bit more yeah this idea of like continuity discourse is part of what comes out of this shift in like the end of the 20th century in american judaism where the Jewish organizations and leaders started to get really into like statistics and looking at like how many Jews they were and like who people were marrying. I think there was a survey like in 1990 of the Jew Jewish population that really like freaked a lot of people out because it showed that like a lot of people were marrying non-Jews. And so it kind of like precipitated this whole crisis about programming and funding. And the term for like getting more people to marry other Jews and then, you know, create Jewish families is basically called Jewish continuity. And I think some of it definitely does come out of this like post-Holocaust era. I mean, it's hard to tell if that's actually like what motivated these leaders and organizations to be interested in continuity in the first place, or if it's more of like a selling point that was kind of used to like sell further generations on Jewish continuity. This idea that Hitler tried to kill us and almost wiped us out, but he didn't. And so we need to like celebrate the fact that Jews still exist and like fight back and create more Jewish families and Jewish babies. So does the term continuity like feel quite loaded or is it more or very political or is it sort of more a neutral term? I think it definitely feels like loaded and political. I think especially now when there's been like a pretty sustained backlash among I think like leftists and younger generations around this project in American Jewish life that it kind of ends up excluding people's partners who aren't Jewish and making interfaith families not feel welcome and making the Jewish kids who are the child of interfaith families like not feel welcome. In certain Jewish spaces, there's been a lot of backlash to that. And also I just maybe the way in which like this idea of continuity perpetuates like a certain heteronormative familial structure. So I think it's definitely loaded. One thing we've talked about at Jewish Currents is like what, what it would mean to like detangle this idea of like continuity from the more like biopolitical project. Is it actually an act of continuity to be like making a magazine or do like cultural reproduction instead of just baby reproduction or whatever? 
I want to take a moment to highlight this point as I think it's so important. There's nothing wrong with a community wanting to carry on its cultural traditions, of course. I mean, as long as those traditions don't impede on people's human rights. But the problem, as Mari said, is when the concept relies entirely on women having more of the right kind of babies. There's a scene later in the film where I think it'll be a good spot to talk about the nuclear family and its invention and profound problems. So we'll get into that all later. But I was reminded of a line in Sheila Hetty's book called Motherhood. When I was younger, thinking about whether I wanted children, I always came back to this formula. If no one had told me anything about the world, I would have invented boyfriends. I would have invented sex, friendship, art. I would not have invented child rearing. Of course, she's not suggesting no feminist is suggesting that no one should have babies ever again. But art and friendship people and dirty dancing, of course. one of the podcast courses I used to teach a group of Jewish girls for their final podcast project did a show about Jewish stereotypes. And the two stereotypes they picked were the nice Jewish boy and the Jewish American princess. I had never heard of either of these, um, but these ideas immediately came to mind when I started revisiting this scene. I still remember the opening of the Nice Jewish Boys episode my students did, and one of the girls says to the other, do you think all Jewish boys are nice? And the other responds, definitely not, but I think all Jewish boys think they are because that's what they've been told. I found an interesting essay about the stereotype on Medium by Stephen Bloom. He says it has its roots in the Bible where a nice bookish mama's boy like Jacob is able to outsmart a brawny bro like Esau, and that on Jewish apps, men will self-describe as a nice Jewish boy, as in I'm suitable marriage material, as in you can take me home to your Jewish mom. Mari and I first talked about Robbie and how he represents the dark side of this trope. Robbie, I think he is kind of a character that sort of like represents the insidious nature of this like nice Jewish boy. It's kind of like almost in some ways like an emasculating stereotype, right? It's like, you know, he's just sort of a nice Jewish boy. He's not going to hurt anyone. He's maybe like a little bit nerdy, like very smart, harmless. But then it's also like a stereotype that sort of like excuses bad behavior because it's like this assumption is that he couldn't have, you know, he couldn't be doing anything particularly like violent or like hyper-masculine or like threatening. And then obviously he ends up, you know, being a real antagonist. We'll return to the nice Jewish boy stereotype a bit later in this episode and probably again during the movie. But for now, let's move on to Jewish American princess or Jap. On my students' podcasts, they asked each other if they've ever been called a Jap and they both were like, I don't know, but probably behind my back. But then they also admitted they both had a really hard time defining the term. Mari grew up using this term quite a lot, and I asked her if she thought Lisa or Baby fell into the stereotype. Seems like, if anything, maybe, like, Lisa is being the Jewish-American princess in this scene, like, a little bit more. The Jewish-American princess has this, you know, girl who's, like, a little bit, like, ditzy and, like, very, you know, rich and just, like, focused on spending her dad's money and a little bit, like, stuck up. You know, there's even, like, specific coded voices and clothing and stuff that go with it. And honestly, that was like a term we kind of threw around a lot in the Jewish community when I was growing up. We would like abbreviate it as Jap. And so we would be like, oh, yeah, this girl is kind of Jappy. And it was interesting because it wasn't always like a moral or judgment or like even necessarily a put down. Like sometimes it was just well, I think it was kind of a put down, but sometimes it was just sort of like describing someone's like aesthetic. And it was also like you couldn't totally blame them for it. It was just like about maybe like their origin or like their upbringing or if they were from a slightly like fancier, more snobby, richer community, then they would be maybe like considered jappy. But it definitely was something that I started to rethink a lot later in life, especially because there is just this it is it does feel frustrating that it's like a term that like is applied in this derogatory manner to Jewish women, but there's like no equivalent for Jewish men. And so I definitely started to like notice these misogynistic undertones a lot more as I grew up. 
And then especially because there were times like when like Jewish boys would like tease me by calling me a Jap. And that always felt like very frustrating because it was like the specific term that they were able to wield. And I didn't really have anything to give back to them. I mean, if you could if you call someone like a nice Jewish boy, like that's not really a thing that you can just like sort of like people don't really say it in that way, or at least we didn't growing up. So people wouldn't use that as sort of like a like a synonym for being gay or something? No. Like, it's kind of funny. Actually, like, it was a sort of thing that, like, my mom would maybe say to be like, you know, this person's a nice Jewish boy. Maybe you'd be interested in them. Like, it was kind of a positive. I do think, like, for us, that was kind of a negative because, like, this is idea that, like, oh, maybe we're not going to think they're as, like, you know, cute or exciting or fun. Like, if I was, like, hanging out, like, with the guys I was friends with at Temple, I wasn't going to be like, oh, you're a nice Jewish boy. Like, people didn't, like, throw that term around. But we would be, like, talking about girls and be like, oh, yeah, those girls who, like, are from the Detroit suburbs are kind of jappy or something. Something I noticed rewatching like, for the zillionth time just before we jumped on the call is that Lisa and her mom are, like, their backs are, like, ramrod straight the whole time and baby's, like, slouching back in her chair. And I was like, so is, is part of the Jap thing, like, a properness? Or what do you think? I don't know if it was as much properness. I think that for us growing up it was more associated with like some sort of like shallowness and like very focused on like femininity and material things like it probably depends on the era right like for growing up in like the early 2000s like there's like a different like aesthetic than being like you know being young in the 1960s so like it's more about like fitting into like the aesthetic of your era so like in my age like I don't know if it would really be so much about properness um but it would just be more about like having like the coolest most like up-to-date clothing and like maybe like really like well like having your you know maybe naturally curly or wavy Jewish hair being like really well straightened maybe even professionally and just that kind of thing um and I will say I don't know if I'm like the hugest expert on the concept because I I think there's probably interesting like historical reading on the chap concept that I haven't like entirely um read just in terms of my understanding of how it was used colloquially i think it was just maybe more about like the shallowness and about the beautiful and like well-dressed aspect mm-hmm. or like yeah like put together yeah i think definitely put together because that's that certainly seems to be one of the differences they've been showing quite a bit at least for up to scene five is like how done up lisa is compared to baby well and then also compared to like what you're talking about um shallowness and uh, being more concerned with like feminine interests like you have the dad Jake being like oh ba- our baby's gonna change the world and then Max is like Lisa what are you gonna do and baby says she's gonna decorate it and that's obviously meant at least from baby's mouth like as a pejorative and like Lisa can I don't know if, if Lee like Lisa knows that that that's how baby like means it I don't know if Lisa herself feels that way when you said you kind of grow, grew up and thought about it differently, is that sort of the stuff you thought about of like, oh, why are we degrading stuff that, you know, seem to be feminine? Or what, what was sort of your evolution with that? Yeah, I think some of it was just about this idea of like, this kind of idea that it was generally about like degrading women and making them seem kind of like dumb or shallow. Maybe that it also in some ways came with these kind of like unsavory stereotypes about like Jewish wealth, since like a lot of the stereotype is about just like using daddy's credit card. There's also like some interesting and honestly, I don't think I was even really aware of this when I was growing up and we were using the term. So it was something I learned about a little bit more later when I would like read a little bit more about it and stuff. But there is also like kind of a weird sexual element of the Jap stereotype. And that like goes maybe along with like the properness actually a little bit. But I think there is this kind of idea that like the Jap is kind of just like, you know, she's like a beautiful girl and she'll like want you to take her on dates. And, you know, she like will sort of be like flirty and stuff then she like won't put out or like she's sort of like a maybe kind of a prude in a certain way even though she's also like sexually appealing in another sense like I think Philip Roth kind of had this character in some of his early works especially there's a lot of discussion about that in one of his stories in like Goodbye Columbus and so I think that like that's a big part of the stereotype and so that definitely also like once I got older I definitely like had a lot more discomfort with like those types of um, elements of it. That's really interesting because, yeah, I wonder because I mentioned this in the email that it always struck me how like Robbie 
makes this comment like uh, about Lisa or sorry, baby's like Lisa's going to decorate it. And then Robbie says she already does like kind of insinuating that, yeah, she's hot. And that like Marge is like, ooh, like, you know, sharing a look with Lisa like that should be like something they're like proud of that she like kind of caught the attention of that waiter. Whereas I don't I don't know if like because Jake is more like baby's more of like a daddy's girl closer to her father. I don't know if Jake would kind of approve of that language being directed at baby in the same way, potentially. I don't know. This only like occurred to me now with your kind of discussion around like a Jap sort of being more... um, People feeling like they have more entitlement to comment on her sexuality. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think part of it too might have to like this idea that like if she's kind of being like set up to maybe be married off. I don't remember how old. Like, is is the idea that the, she's actually trying to get married soon, or is she just trying to like find a boyfriend? Lisa, is there like an actual? Lisa is the older one. She's supposed to be nineteen, and baby's supposed to be seventeen, which is obviously ridiculous. They like look a lot older than that. Um, and in the movie itself, it no, it's not really mentioned like explicitly that that's what she's there to do. In the screenplay, um, there is like Marge at the very beginning of the screenplay is like maybe we'll find Mister Wright like for Lisa. So I feel like sort of in the subtext, um, it is that Lisa Lisa would be looking for that and they would kind of support her or, or whatever. Right. I kind of read that moment of like this idea that like her mother is kind of helping her like find a match and they want it to be this sort of like eligible, smart, successful Jewish bachelor. And so like, even if the comment he makes is like a little maybe like kind of degrading or like just um, very like public in front of everyone, you know, the mom is like excited about it because it's like that's part of their goal is to like get this guy interested. And also that, you know, it being 1963, that that might have been like considered part of like this courtship process. The the other thing you were saying, like, about the nice Jewish boy, like, stereotype also being kind of um, unattractive, at least for, like, the era you grew up in. There is, in the original screenplay, there's a lot more of, like, the subtext being written out that Baby, Baby, like, in her head is, like, of course Lisa gets the hot guy and the, like, short like Jewish guy is the one like the, I think she says the short creep or something is like the one that that she gets like signed up with and so there definitely was inherent within the screenplay this understanding that like Neil would have been less desirable because he wasn't as like she doesn't say like in the script like he's not as like waspy looking or something but I feel like that seems to be implied and I've also I've read at least one Jewish like film critic explicitly think that uh Robbie is trying to be wasp passing, which I have no idea if that is true or anything. But there does seem to be this like hierarchy between the two of their, um, at least in this scene, until they both become gross, that like Robbie's more desirable. Yeah, because he doesn't look as Jewish, potentially. I'm not sure what you think about that. It's as interesting. I would have to even like look at them a little bit more closely again. But I do think, um, yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know if he was like really trying to be like wasp passing would he work as a waiter at a Catskills resort I'm, I'm not sure it doesn't totally seem like he's escaping like the regular like Jewish dating circuit here um but it is kind of interesting that the movie does sort of play into this theme that like the Jewish boys and like the Jewish men who are on offer are kind of like maybe less attractive I mean I guess it sounds like Robbie's relatively attractive um except but he's like a total kind of creepy piece of shit and then this other guy um is like you know nerdy and sort of like not great looking and just like not very masculine or appealing whereas these other like sort of non-jewish staff who are also maybe more like working class and closer to actually having like a more live exciting sexuality are the ones that actually end up being like a lot more appealing yeah um one of the episodes i listened to of on the nose we were talking about the jewish matchmaking show and something that seemed to be coming up a lot was like people when they were dating sort of their desired especially like physical traits in a partner that they would sort of skew towards what they would what the participants would call like european um and that in many ways that was sort of coded as more like white looking and i'm sort of curious like the presentation of lisa and baby what does it feel like, yeah, like that they would, where would they fit in sort of that context? I don't know if if they do because it's too, it's a different era, but I was try, sort of trying to suss that out when I was listening 
to your podcast? I think it's complicated. It's slightly different era. And also, I think one of the interesting parts of the Jewish matchmaking show is that like the men who are expressing these really strong preferences are actually either Israeli. Well, there's one who's Israeli American. And then there's one who's like Italian, but is living in Israel. So are sort of like more influenced by Israeli society. Israeli society, you know, is divided between like more like Ashkenazi, which is like a European background Jews, and then um, Mizrahim and Sephardim, which are Jews of either like Middle Eastern and North African or like originally like Spanish background. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's historically been like a lot of discrimination against like Mizrahi and um, Sephardi Jews in Israel with like the Ashkenazim being like the privileged European elite. And that discrimination carries around to like other places in the world and in the United States, but it's like especially prominent in Israel because there's like a really big Mizrahi population with like Jews who came from surrounding Middle Eastern countries. Like I think a lot of American Jews don't even really know like the like Ashkenazi communities are like such a majority that there's like really a specific type of Jew that people are like used to. Um, And so I think that like some of those like racial tensions within Jewishness are just like not even apparent to a lot of American Jews because they don't really think about it that way. In Israel, it's like much more on the surface. That was kind of my analysis of like the fact that these Israeli men were being like so overt about their preferences for these like more European types of Jews. Um, But I do think in general, it totally is a thing in that like if you think about like a more, you know, like the traditional image of the Ashkenazi American Jew, there is like, you know, the nose and like the curly hair and, you know, these traits that are not very close to like the kind of desirable wasp beauty standard. And I mean, that is something that definitely plays out growing up. You know, a lot of Jewish girls who had curlier hair were like straightening it all the time. It's definitely something that like I think my sisters and I dealt with. And there's definitely a pressure to like downplay those elements. In terms of dirty dancing, it is kind of interesting because I think Jennifer Grey did go on to get a nose job later. Yeah, that's that's a very complicated story I have not like delved into yet, but Okay. I don't know enough about it, yeah. But uh, but something that definitely comes up is people like talking about how nice it was in the 80s to have a female love interest lead look like obviously Jewish because of her nose. Um but something I'm thinking about like with Lisa like cuz and probably yeah, like maybe the racial politics aren't the, aren't the same as Israel. That she probably was very influenced by like the teen culture that was really like a, had emerged in the fifties and sixties. And I imagine like a lot of those teen idol women would have had yeah like straightened straightened hair, um, which she does and Baby doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I do think even in the U.S., like it is kind of significant to have this sort of like curly haired, very obviously Jewish looking heroine who is kind of like presented as like a sexually attractive way and it makes a difference and it is just like pretty fascinating to watch jewish matchmaking and like see how those some of those kind of like stereotypes like endure or just to like have that guy who one of the characters who was in israel be like yeah i don't usually date like women with curly hair or something like that which is just like a crazy thing to say and also, yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if there's like, you know, American Jewish guys who would have been on the show, but maybe they just like know not to say that. Like, I don't know. It might also like, I just like, it's like, why would you say that on TV? It does feel like maybe a somewhat intentional choice is that like baby sort of has this kind of like free flowing, like curly hair, whereas like Lisa, despite being her sister and, you know, doesn't look super similar to her and has like definitely a more kind of conventional straight haired look. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess like... The thing that, like, because, you know, it's written by um, a Jewish woman who did go to the Catskills, like, when she was younger. She's a bit older, though, than Baby. I was, like, looking up her age. She's, like, more like Gloria Steinem's age. Um, you, You don't, as much as Baby does grow and learn, you don't feel like it was... Like the kind of social justice, even if it's sort of like a milk toast version that her father embedded in her, you don't get the sense that all of that was for naught and all of that was sort of like wrong. Like you do feel like the spirit of this resort is generally on like the right side. I think that's why one of the reasons why the movie is like timeless. I think it does sort of like as much as it's a like simple love story, it does sort of honor some degree of nuance. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I mean, looking as far as what I um, remember, I think it's kind of it's sort of an optimistic movie in a way about like the possibility of like American 
Jewish politics. I mean, maybe not in terms of like so much in terms of how the resort is run and like the owner and the way that like it has this sort of bad like class hierarchy. But I think that like at the end, the way that baby's dad does kind of like come around and support her and that he kind of like puts his like intelligence and support for her sense of ethics that he does prioritize that it's kind of a happy ending or sort of like a optimistic idea that like maybe these like American Jewish families are kind of assimilated and have ended up in this like upper class position that can have them discriminating and um, be out of touch in their privilege. But then, you know, it is possible for them to like connect and like remember a sense of ethics or a sense of justice. And so it does kind of give a relatively optimistic ending, even if it's like more on an individual sense and, you know, more about individuals deciding to do the right thing rather than like any sort of structures. Mari Cohen. I will link to her work in the show notes. On the Dirty Debrief, I'll share an interview I did with my friend Andrew, famous nice Jewish boy, about his surprising nice Jewish boy media icon. Email me with any of your thoughts about scene five, ellie at buttoutbaby.com. Follow the show on Instagram. Check out Claire Whitehead's new music that she's releasing under the name Midswim. And thanks for tuning in.